0: You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we started a series last week talking about the Bible. And it's interesting starting a series about the Bible, because what do you take from the Bible to preach about the Bible? That that's, that was hard for us. Uh, so we looked at 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Apostle Paul says the the word is God breathed, and that's been a prayer for us as a church that through this series our approach to the Bible would change, that we would be awed again, we'd be drawn again, we'd be uh, you know overwhelmed again by what's gifted to us in the Bible, and we would come to the Word every day not through obligation or drudgery, but by saying, "I need to breathe today. I need the breath of God." in my lungs. And so we we laid some foundation last week that I want to remind us of, and then we'll keep this series going today. Uh, So last week we said the Bible is both a human book and a divine book, and that's okay with us. And through these human words, sinful humans wrote this book, God spoke to his people. And what did he speak? He spoke a story. He tells them a story. And not only does he tell them a story, he invites them into a relationship called a covenant and then he sends them on mission. So that's what we framed out last week. And so it's from the position of covenant with God, on mission with God, that we see the Bible as an authority that we live under. So when we talk about the Bible being our authority, what we mean is that the Bible is how Jesus expresses his authority over us. It's through the word of God that Jesus expresses his authority over us. And so uh, in Christian college, uh, it was taught to us this way. There was something called the revelatory triangle. Isn't that a fun word to say? Revelatory, Use that this week. I was talking to you and midway through, I had a revelatory thought. Just try that. Uh, so I brought a... a, a a graphic of the revelatory triangle. And here's what, here's what we mean when we talk about God revealing himself in the scriptures. Up top there, you see that God is the revelation. He has acted. He's revealed himself in creation, in the Exodus story, in the incarnation. So that has happened. And then over to your right, you have inspiration. That means God asks certain human beings to write down what he has revealed to his creation. And then lastly, you have the word illumination which means the Holy Spirit is a gift to the ongoing church to help us understand what was written about what has been revealed by God. So it's important for us to know that illumination is lower than inspiration. So what we mean is the principles of how we understand the Bible are never above the inspired person who wrote the Bible. So you can't take Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and make that verse about weightlifting, Or make that verse about dating a girl. Like, hey, I'm going to ask this girl out. And you're like, you probably shouldn't. You're like, hey, Philippians (laughs) 4.13. Like, it's not about that, bro. You're going to learn the hard way. Go get her. That's called proof texting. Proof texting is when you take something in the Bible and you grab one verse out of context. This is a major temptation in our day. We see this in preaching, we see this in culture. People take one verse out of the Bible and they redefine the words of that verse and they use it to back up an idea they already have. They don't let the Bible speak, they they let the Bible affirm what they already believe. And so we've gotta be cautious about how we talk about this book because it's a holy book, it's a sacred book. Uh, But listen, in culture and in the world, there there are many other holy books. There are many other religious texts in the world. You've got the Quran, you've got the Book of Mormon, you've got the Rig Veda, you've got lots of books out there that say they are sacred writings about a divine being. And what's fascinating about most world religions, and I'm going to overstate this, but most world religions, here's, here's what religion does through his teachings. Religion says, there's a God, a deity of some kind, but he is distant from us. This is religion. And it is up to you to close the gap in that distance. There's a God, he's distant, and it's up to you to close that gap. And then the scripture comes along and says, there's a God and you are distant from him. (laughs) And he has done everything imaginable to close the gap, to be close to you, to be near to you. And so we have to understand the Bible properly so that it can sit apart from other sacred texts. And the way the scripture tells us to believe that God has closed the gap, not that we have to close the gap, is it tells us to have faith. Faith, that's the word, faith. A lot of controversy about what the word faith means, a lot of misunderstanding about what the word faith means. So if you believe that the Bible is more than words, you are saying a faith statement. So I wanna go to the Bible and talk to us about a biblical understanding of faith so that we can look at the scriptures rightly. And to do that, we gotta go to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're gonna read about faith and we're gonna talk through the implications of that faith and what it means for our mind and our heart and our body uh, and everything that we can do to walk into this faith that God's called us to. The book of Hebrews is in the New Testament. Uh, No one knows who the author of Hebrews is. uh, And the joke is, uh, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but whoever wrote it, she was brilliant. Uh, not that funny. Okay, cool. I got more jokes. That's, that's a bad one. Oh, for one. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're just on page one of my notes. It's coming. I was just giving you time to find Hebrews chapter 11. Okay. Hebrews chapter 11. Here we go. Here we go. Verse one. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Who are the ancients? That's, that's the Old Testament story. And he's gonna start naming some Old Testament people and how they lived in faith. Verse three. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleases God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Major passage of scripture there. If God is out there and there's a distance between us and he's drawn near, what does it take for us to please this God? Faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So you may not have caught this in your translation, uh, but the Bible here has some some controversy going on in Hebrews 11 verse one. And you may not have seen this in your manuscript, but don't worry, I brought this for you. So uh, my translation says faith is the assurance or confidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And some of you may have a different translation uh, that says something different. So I actually brought these to put on the screen for us, the two different ways Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 is translated. So in the Greek it says faith is the apostes, of things hoped for and the elengos of things unseen. So translators have debated what apostes and elengos has mean and so the first translation they went with assurance and confidence and conviction and that's what like the NIV the ESV the NASB translates it but in another translation it says this faith is the substance or the reality of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. So you can see how there's a little bit of variance here. This doesn't mean someone is tampering with your Bible. It means it's a complex process to take an old ancient language and translate it to English. But most theologians, most historians believe that the second uh, interpretation or translation of this is the best one, that there is an evidence of something There's a reality and a substance to it, and faith is putting my mental understanding to get around what I can't see yet, what I can't touch yet, what I can't do but hope for, and and turning it into a tangible experience. So it's not just a mental uh, state. Faith is about actions and choices. It's not just philosophical or mindless. So to say it another way, it's like this. Uh, Biblical faith begins with reason, but is completed by action and belief and obedience. Biblical faith begins with reason, but it's completed by action and obedience. So we talk about biblical faith. What we're saying is we are hoping and we are assured of something we don't see. And when we read the Bible, there's a mental activity that happens that leads us to make choices, that lead us to an experience, that lead us to a future reality that's coming that is not yet here. And listen, I know that is It's difficult to track with, and that takes some mental calories, and I have struggled for a long time to understand what the Bible is talking about when it talks about faith being the assurance of things hoped for. And so here's an illustration that I hope helps. Um, In the Northwest, it is about to get very cold for a very long time. I have bad news for you. Even you snowboarders and skiers Get tired of it. It's, a, it's coming for us. It's going to be freezing for so long that at some point in March, you are going to believe that it could never get warm again. You will, you will look at soup and you will look at crockpots and you will reject them with all your heart because your body just can't take another soup or anything else made in a crockpot. <laughs> you will not see the sun for months and you'll start to believe that God has forsaken you. And you'll start to look at Resonate Church and you'll start to pray and ask, why won't Resonate plant a church in San Diego? That's obviously where God has called me to go. And you'll get mad at Resonate, everyone gets mad at Resonate in February. They're not mad at Resonate, they're mad at the earth. They're mad at the sun. Vitamin D is the problem, not California church plants. <laughs> They're coming, by God's grace. We'll get there. But there's this sense of like, it's never going to happen. And it starts to make you feel hopeless. And then you get to April, the beginning of April, and you walk outside one day and you see something you haven't seen in a long time. You see like the sun's out and you're like, oh, hello, old friend. <laughs> and you, you see something else. This is, this is in my yard. Now we have perennial flowers in our yard. And so April, the first week of April, you walk outside and you're still wearing your big puffy jacket and you see that there's still snow on the ground still in April. Uh, But something has happened. Um, You look over and there is a tulip flower that has made its way through the snow. I I brought a photo of a tulip in the snow to make this more dramatic. Look at that. (laughs) And it stops you in your tracks. You're stopped on the front porch and you're just looking at the tulip. You're like, ah. Hello, tulip. You look at the tulip, you look at the sun, you look at the tulip, you look at the sun, and you unzip your big coat. And you walk back inside and you hang it on the rack. And you got another coat on under, it's fine. So you walk out and you're wearing your light jacket now. And you walk by that tulip and you tip your hat and you say, thank you, tulip in the snow. You are evidence of a future reality that I will choose today to live into by taking off my outer jacket. (laughs) You are starting to experience the reality of a coming summer. Oh, the summer. I don't even say the spring. We don't really get the spring in the Northwest. Just skip it. (laughs) Spring is coming. As lands on the move, you're, it's not going to stay winter forever. And you start to live into the reality already of something that is not yet. That, that's biblical faith. How can we start to live right now as though we are in a place that is not yet? How can we already experience something that is not yet? So faith is not just thinking about a future reality. It is taking off our jacket and living in light of that future reality. So another way to say it, when you act in faith, you are getting in touch with the future reality. And it is not random and it is not hopeful. You don't walk outside and go, I just hope it's warm today. I hope eventually we get there. There is a tulip coming through the snow. I have evidence that it's happening. And I'm gonna start to move towards what I have evidence in. So there's a mindfulness to that. Christian faith is not mindless. It is not foundationless. There is a mindfulness. And we see this in Hebrews 11. I wanna show you a couple more passages here. In Hebrews 11, verse 11, it says this. And by faith, even Sarah, who's Sarah? Abraham's wife. Early in the Old Testament, who was past childbearing age, wasn't able to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is as good as dead, I love that scripture. So from her husband, who's so old, he might as well be dead, came descendants as numerous as the sky, the stars in the sky and as countless as sand in the seashore. So faith begins with something. Sarah is old, but she's told you're going to have a baby. And she's like, that's not really possible. I can't have a baby. I'm too old and I'm married to a guy who's about to die. But then she started to understand I'm not the only one in this scenario. And what does she do? What does the scripture say she do? She does. She considered him who was faithful, that being God. She considered him who was faithful and then she starts to believe in the evidence of his faithfulness in her life and she saw that his promises can be trusted and she used her mind and responded to God and ultimately they had a kid. In verse 17, the story goes on in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, that's Sarah's husband, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Who's Isaac? That's the son, dead guy, and old lady had together. Isaac, it happened. They have Isaac. Isaac. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. And even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Here's what's crazy. God gives them Isaac and then God says, sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham's like, hey, I thought we just like kind of had this miraculous moment that we even get Isaac. And then in verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He's asked to take Isaac up and sacrifice him. It makes no sense to him, but he looks at God and goes, you're faithful to your promise. I shouldn't even have Isaac. You gifted us Isaac. So if you're saying we got to sacrifice Isaac, that sounds wild to me, but you're trustworthy. So he goes forward. He goes to sacrifice Isaac, like pulls back the knife. God stops him and says, actually, there's a ram uh, over there. And, And God provides for him in a way that's profound and marks the remainder of Abraham's life, understanding God is one who provides. And he thinks it through and acts in obedience, not mindlessly which is so significant for us to understand that when the Bible tells you to do something or it tells you who you are and what you should be doing, it always does that in light of who God is. And so when I'm being told to do something, it's not random. It's not morals from the sky. It's from the character of God himself, you know, asking us to operate in faith. So the Bible doesn't teach you to reject reason. That is a misunderstanding of faith. But that's something that in the secular world happens all the time. Atheistic belief pushes that uh, forward all the time that, that people have pitted these two things against each other. Faith and reason can't be together. We, we see this from famous atheists. Uh, there's a guy named Sam Harris who wrote a book called Letter to a Christian Nation or End of Faith. Uh, and he, he describes it like this. Uh, Sam Harris defines faith as the license religious people give themselves to keep believing when reasons fail. You guys ain't got no reasons, there's no, there's no reason to believe, but you kind of have to believe, so you just call it faith. Uh, Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous atheist uh, in a generation, he says this, he says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence, so he goes, you, 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 people that have faith, you have no evidence, so you had to make up a word so that you can still do the thing you want to do, and we can't have a conversation about reason or about facts or about data because that would totally blow up uh, your your worldview. And so then I brought another quote by Mark Twain because I quoted him last week, and why not go two weeks in a row? Uh, Mark Twain says this: "Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Like I know that ain't so, but I got to believe it. That that that's essentially." What the world says we have is no reason to have faith in. And so, uh, man, just for me and like the way I'm wired, like on the Myers-Briggs, like I'm like 95% thinker. I have feelings. I have three daughters, okay? I cry sometimes. Like when a thought is really good, it like makes me cry. I'm like, oh, that's such a good thought. Oh, wow, what a great thought. That, that's how it works out for me, okay? But man, I, I get... I get really I get really worried about you and and, and you being told that 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 faith is mindless uh, and I get really bummed out when I think about uh, Christians being being told hey you need to check your mind at the door if you're going to follow Jesus that's not true there are reasons to believe that this is more than words like actual reasons. To believe. And I brought a few of them today that, that have been so helpful to me over the years, and maybe they'll be helpful to you as well. So here's a few reasons why you should believe and we should put our faith in the Bible being the word of God. Number one, I brought four of them. If you don't like one or two, I got two more after that. Brought four. Number one, predicted prophecy. Someone is in control of history The Bible is 27% prophetic, 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. What is a prophecy? It is a pre-written history. Prophecy is, is, is the evidence of foreknowledge, or another way to say it, it's the evidence of foreordination. It's the ability for someone to see into the future, write about it, orchestrate events in human history through their sovereignty, to then accomplish the thing that they prophesied, proving their foreknowledge. That, that, that's what it is. And so there's stuff in the Old Testament about the fall of Babylon or the length of Judah's captivity or the destruction of this city or that city, or there's a place where Cyrus is told to be the king a hundred years before Cyrus becomes king. There's all these prophetic things about uh, the ancient world that, that happened. And the Bible uh, tells you these things way ahead of time but the place that is really most profound and the place where the story of scripture really finds its apex is in the prophecies about the coming messiah and there's 62 of them specifically that this coming Messiah was going to be like, was going to live into, was going to have. And they're said about him way before he comes onto the scene. And we know on the other side of these prophecies that that coming Messiah's name was Jesus and these things have come to pass. And here are some of the prophetic things that were said about Jesus. That he would be born of a virgin. He would be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. He'd be born in Bethlehem. Great persons would come to adore him. There would be killing of children in Bethlehem because of his birth. He would be called out of Egypt. He would be preceded by a forerunner, his cousin John the Baptist. He would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. He'd be a prophet like Moses and a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He would enter into his public ministry in Galilee and he would show up into Jerusalem and go into the temple and call it his father's house. He would live in poverty and meekness, tenderness and compassion. He would be without deceit. He would be full of zeal, preaching in parables, working miracles, bearing reproach. He would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren. The Jews and the Gentiles would combine together against him. He'd be betrayed by a friend. His disciples would forsake him. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He would die an intense death and yet be silent under the suffering. He would be struck on the cheek, which I think is a very specific prophecy. Be struck on the cheek. He'd be spit upon and scarred his hands and his feet would be nailed to a cross. He'd be forsaken by God. On the cross, he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be mocked. Gall and vinegar would be offered to him on the cross. His garments would be parted. Lots would be cast for his clothing. He would be numbered among the transgressors. He would intercede for those who were murdering him. He would die, but not a bone of his body would be broken. He'd be pierced long before the crucifixion would ever even be invented. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. His flesh would not see corruption in that tomb, he'd be raised from the dead, he would descend ascend back to the right hand of God the Father where he came from and all of these are recorded hundreds of years before Jesus entered the world and many of these prophecies are fulfilled not by his friends but by his enemies who stood to lose the most from their fulfillments and many of these prophecies were being fulfilled before he was born, while he was in his mother's womb or while he was in the grave someone is in control of history. And the Bible stands alone on the prophetic landscape of history. That is data. And that is reason for you and I to believe that this is the word of God. And that's just reason number one. Reason number two, archaeological confirmation. The historicity of the Bible continues to be verified. In 1947, In Qumran, on the west bank of Israel, in a cave, a couple of shepherds were throwing rocks and they heard the breaking of a jar. And over the next nine years, archaeologists found what would later become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are considered by many to be the single most important archaeological manuscripts found in the 20th century. 1,400 original documents, 100,000 fragments in all. And some of the scrolls were 30 feet long. I brought some photos to show you the caves in which these were found in. Uh, there ultimately were nine caves where people uh, found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then there's a picture of what the scrolls ended up looking like in their original um, in their original form. In one of these jars, they found the whole scroll of Isaiah. The whole scroll one of the early manuscripts of the whole scroll. And for a while people didn't know what these were and so they were passed around and then ultimately they were found and recognized to be something special by a professor named Eliezer Sukanek. And with Sukanek, I brought a photo of him. When he found uh, the scriptures or when he saw them, he, he was recorded as saying this when He said, my hands shook as I started to unwrap one of them. And I read a few sentences. It was written in beautiful biblical Hebrew. The language was like that of the Psalms. And I looked and I looked and I suddenly had the feeling that I was privileged by destiny to gaze upon a Hebrew scroll which had been read uh, for more than 2,000 years. These early manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts we had before these was like 800 to 100 AD. These date back to 250 B.C. What does that mean? This means the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found like 50 years ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls provide us with manuscripts that have been copied more than 1,000 years earlier than the previous copies we had. 1,000 years earlier. So they took these Dead Sea Scrolls and they compared them to the ones we had from 800 to 100 B.C., and they put them next to each other and they started looking at the original manuscripts and what they found was very little variance at all. And by very little, I mean no story variance, no meaning variance, no no critically important variance, little, uh, this guy wrote the word the and this guy wrote the word a. Like small textual critical manuscript change but nothing that had any variance on the story and it shook up the archeological world. Uh, My my biblical interpretations professor in college, his homepage of his computer, like when he got online every morning, it was an archeology span website. He was just hoping. He would pray for archeologists. They would dig around in the Middle East and just find stuff that would confirm the Bible. You should not be afraid of excavators in the Middle East. You should pray for them. Dig it up, guys. Can't wait to worship when you're done. Find some more stuff. Archaeological confirmation. Is a reason that we can believe this is the word of God. Number three, unanimity, unanimity. The Bible, two thousand years, three languages, complex history. Everyone has the same story. Most of the other holy books in the world, again, the Book of Mormon or the Quran. Like in the Quran, for instance, there's 114 chapters or suras, uh, and they are all uh, they're rarely focused on the same theme, and they were written by one person. And in the book, in the in the Book of Mormon, you have the same thing. You, you've got one guy writing a divine revelation, but he, he the Book of Mormon has not one historically reliable fact, not one, much less any fulfilled prophecy written by one guy. And then you've got the Bible, written by forty people over fifteen hundred years, and they're so diverse and they're so. Uh, complex in their background. David was a shepherd. Solomon is a monarch. Amos was a herdsman. Luke is a doctor. Paul is a rabbi. Peter is a fisherman. Yet despite all of this variance, there's a common theme. The book of Genesis tells us mankind has fallen away from God and they need redemption And the redemptive story is written through a covenant people named Israel that turns into its ultimate accomplishments in the gospel by Jesus who unleashes the church to continue this story. And it all consummates in the book of Revelation where all things are made to be new again. The only explanation for such unity in this kind of book is that it was composed under such diverse circumstances. The only explanation is that there is a divine author who oversaw the whole product from beginning to end. There are reasons to believe that this book is the word of God. And number four, the last reason, power. Whenever this book has been read and taught and preached, people have been morally and permanently changed and it's happening in our midst right now as well. This book can be sent to a, a country that has very little uh, education or knowledge and this book has power to morally and permanently change people. But I I just gave you data, I just gave you facts. Those are just things that are true about the Bible and human history, and those are reasons that we should trust it as the word of God. However, if you're a follower of Jesus, your faith does not stop there. It doesn't stop by saying, I can win an argument now, or I know some history now, or I'm gonna go Google the Dead Sea Scrolls now, which you all should do, it's awesome. Uh, It's not just that, our faith says that that this is not unreasonable for us, but it goes further than that. It's not just something that we understand, it's something that we obey. And so back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse eight. It's not just a faith that we cognitively understand, it's something that we act on. It says this, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he he thought about it. No, it, it says he obeyed and went. Even though he didn't know where he was going, by faith, Abraham obeyed. And if you skip down to verse 10, it says, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so listen, we are trying to say that this Bible, it can guide you to a new way of thinking. And that's beautiful and that's profound and that's good, but that's not the Bible's end game. It's not just to guide you to a new way of thinking, it's ultimately designed to guide you to a new way of living. There is action required in this book. You shouldn't read the Great Commission and go, wow, that is a, man, have you seen the eloquence of this Greek? This is crazy. Did you read how he put these verbs together? That's so beautiful, oh my gosh, I love this. That's not the end game of the Bible. It's to read it and to obey. So yes, to say it this way, we are required to reason with the words we read, to grapple with them, try to understand them. And we are required to respond in obedience to the words we read. Get a study Bible, reason with it, grapple with it, try to understand, God, what are you saying? What do you mean when you say that? There's this great story about Martin Luther when he would read the book of Romans. It's like he would grab the apostle Paul by his cloak. This is Martin Luther's uh, quote. He grab Paul by his cloak and bang him on the chest and say, tell me what you mean. Tell me what you mean. Reason with it. Try to understand it. But understand for the sake of obeying, not for the sake of knowledge, for the sake of obedience. This is what it looks like. Reason and respond. Reason and respond. By faith, Abraham went out not knowing where he was gonna go. So here's what it looks like for you. God tells you to do something and you respond, but what if that goes wrong? Or what if I don't understand? Or what if I don't know what's next? And you're unwilling to move forward because of the uncertainty of what moving forward looks like. And so listen, if you only take steps where you know what's going to happen next, that is not biblical faith. That is you controlling your life and trying to add Jesus on top of it. It's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is saying, I'm gonna gonna reason with that, I'm gonna think about that, I'm gonna consider your faithfulness to me in this. And then in light of your faithfulness, God, I'm gonna move forward because of who you are. And there's a different understanding of how faith works to a believer than how blind faith works in the world. But listen, for, for a long time, like my generation was taught faith by using the, uh, the epic movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Th- th- this was faith for us. Like I-, I brought a slide of this. This is Indiana Jones. He's like stuck on the ledge. Do you guys know this scene, the invisible bridge scene? This is how faith was taught to us that you can't see that there's a bridge there until you take a step believing that there's a bridge there. And that's how it was taught to us. Uh, and so Indiana Jones actually takes a step, and then when he takes a step, voila, there is a bridge that was hidden there the whole time. And growing up, going to summer camps, like I remember being in, in events where like the, the preacher on stage would be talking about Indiana Jones. And he'd be like, some of you in this room, you don't understand what's next for you, but if you'll just take one step, I promise you the, that, that, that bridge is gonna be there and you're gonna be able to cross the great divide to get to God and they would have tears in their eyes and I'd be in the crowd like, why am I crying? Uh, I'm not sure. And that's how faith was taught to me. Indiana Jones, take a step when you can't see. That, that was faith. I, I, I don't know that that's the best picture of what faith is. It's not taking a step hoping that there's a bridge there. I wonder if a better picture for faith than Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is a picture of a three-year-old kid sitting on the side of the pool being asked by his dad to jump in. I wonder if a better picture is something like this. I don't know who that is, but that guy kind of looks like Nicolas Cage, which is cool, right? <laughs> God, Nicolas Cage, it's all the same, right? So <laughs> jumping in, jumping in. But here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like in my life. You've got a three year old kid on the side of the pool. And she's looking at you, dad, who's in the pool, and your arms are around you, and you're saying, come on, jump in. And she's looking at you like, all right, I've known you a couple years. (laughs) You seem all right. (laughs) Generally speaking, when I jump, you catch me. We had an incident earlier. (laughs) What's she doing? She's reasoning. She's like, your arms are like, okay. Like, you're not like, you probably catch me. And you seem to be doing okay in the water. And it's hot out here. I'd really like to be in that water. But I can't swim. So I got a problem. But based on who you are, Dad, and the strength of your arms, Dad, and the character of your faithfulness, Dad, I'm gonna jump into this water. Not because if I jump, I'll be fine, but because based on who you are and the confidence I have in you, I can trust that moving forward will be safe even though it looks dangerous. And that is all based on your character, not mine. And not if I take a step, I'm so awesome that a bridge appears. No. It's if you don't help me, I drowned. If you don't catch me, I'm in big trouble. But because of who you are and because of your character, I'm jumping forward. So listen to me. Biblical faith is not a blind leap. It is a leap of trust based on truth. Biblical faith is not a blind leap. You do not open the Bible and go, okay, I was told to obey. Oh, okay, I got to blindly obey and good luck out there. No, no, no. It is a, a movement towards God, trusting in his character as you go, based on the truth of his faithfulness in your life. And you go, Josh, I don't have a long history with God. I've been in this like one or two years. How do I trust that God's faithful? Just go to the Old Testament and read about his faithfulness. And borrow the stories from the scripture, trusting that they are true of his character and they will be true of you as well. It is not a blind leap. There is a tulip in the snow. And that tulip says something that is not here yet is available now. And that's what faith Looks like So when you read the Bible, you're gonna have moments of re- reading this and you're gonna reason with stuff and it's gonna look crazy to you. The Bible's gonna tell you difficult things and they're gonna call you, Jesus is gonna call you to things that look upside down. Biblical purity is laughable in our culture, laughable for you to say, I am not going to, to, to move into any sort of sexual intimacy until I am fully one with my spouse, I'm waiting to marriage, husband and wife, then game on baby, it's worship. Before that, sin. None of you are married, but if you were, it'd be like, that joke kills in a married crowd, okay? It's awkward in a bunch of sinners crowd, okay? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, too soon. (laughs) A sexual ethic presented in this word is laughable in our culture. And it looks like a blind leap of faith. But for you, you're going, I know this is hard, what God's calling me to but man he's trustworthy and I think he knows better I think he knows how to be human and I, I don't think he's withholding from me I think he's protecting me he's providing for me and he's leading me and he's helping me to something this looks upside down forgiveness is wild in our culture Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Take care of the poor. Provide family for the widow and the orphan. Take up your cross and follow me. Make disciples. Be generous. Be selfless. This Bible is not tips and tricks and how-tos to a happy life. It is the, the, the word of God pressing on us to walk away from sin and walk towards Jesus in faith. And it's not faith until you do something about it. It's not faith until you you are taught by the word and you obey the word. Teachability is not reading the Bible going, oh man, that verse is fire. Ain't gonna do it at all, but it looks really good when I say that verse is fire. No, it's going, gosh, that is, that's, that's, whew. And then moving forward in obedience, even when it looks risky and scary and laughable and hard trusting that your father's trustworthy and good and not withholding from you. He's protecting you and preserving you for the glorious future that he has ahead of you. So maybe you come to the Bible and you're skeptical. And maybe you come to the Bible and you're worried that you don't know enough. And I know in a room like this, that we're all over the place. And some of you here are believers, some of you here aren't. And so if you're not a believer here, you should come to the Bible looking for a saving faith, a faith that could save you. Scripture says That if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is not irrational. That is not unreasonable. The Bible gives us a reason to believe that he came near to us in a man named Jesus in human history who lived in a world where eyewitnesses saw his life play out on a grand stage in a city named Jerusalem. That was a prominent city in the ancient world and the Romans, they, they brutally killed him and his body was put into a grave and now they can't find his body. That's just history. And it's either the greatest hoax in human history or it is God coming near to us supernaturally, raising his son from the dead, showing you what's possible in your life now. That faith that you need is a saving faith. God, would you save me? Would you give me faith to believe that that's true? Because I've tried to get close to you and I can't do it. So God, give me faith to believe that you came close to me and that your word is not lying when it says that. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you already believe that, then you come to the Bible looking for a satisfying faith. God, would you satisfy me with your word? God, I don't want to be satisfied by people's approval or by relationships. I don't want to be satisfied by, by money or, or by you know getting bigger houses and better stuff. I want to be satisfied by Christ and by you and your word. And, and God, these cravings I have in me, would you help me kill those according to your word? Would you help me die daily? And you're coming to the Bible recognizing that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, are most satisfied when we obey. And when we obey, we're getting in touch with the future reality, the tulip in the snow. And when we obey, we are furthering the ongoing story God is writing. And when we obey, we are honoring our end of the covenant. And when we obey, we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so we come to the Bible getting to know him through our mind, hoping that our heart will follow suit and love him and hoping that our body will go forward and be transformed by his word. And so these are more than words and they bring to us the opportunity to have more of this life than we've ever seen or known. But we should know it and love it and internalize it and live it. So Resonate Church, what would it look like if we were a group of people that put Bible reading like, on our calendar? Like it's something we're not gonna miss because we need it to be satisfied. We need it to breathe. We put Bible reading on our calendar. And what, if it, what would it look like if we were the kind of people that went to the word of God every single day? And we grappled with it and we tried to understand it and we studied it and we, we cross-referenced it and we got to know it. And then we moved forward in obedience because of it. And we asked ourselves over and over again, what does this say about God? A God who is drawn near to me in Christ. And what does this say about my condition towards that God? And how do I repent so that I can be more like him? And how do I believe so that I can know who he is more? And ultimately, how do I have more faith in his word? This is what you so desperately need. Not a bunch of rules, not a bunch of morals. The story of a God who came near to you and gave you everything necessary for salvation in Christ. What would it look like if we were those kind of people in love with that kind of God, faithfully obeying him in this world? we'd have a chance to show this world of a future reality called the kingdom. And that's what he's invited our church to be. That's what he's invited all of us to do. So I wanna pray that we'd be those kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you chose to come near to us. And we're so thankful that you're not, you're not a God of other religions. You're not the God who is distant. You're not the God who says, hey, get your act together and then you can come close to me. That's not who you are and the reason we know that and the reason we could say that with authority is because that is not who your word says you are. Your word says you are a father to the fatherless. Your word says that you are a God who has drawn near to us in Christ and has offered us the righteousness of Christ freely because of your grace and your love. Your word says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God, that, that changes everything about our lives that makes us want to know you, that makes us want to worship you, that makes us want to live for you, that makes us want to get your kingdom here now in this world. So God, as a church, would you just stir up in us a passion for your word? And God, would you give us faith to trust what you say? We got a lot of other voices speaking to us. We got a lot of other input coming our way, God, but would would your voice be the loudest voice in our life? Would your word be the loudest word in our life? And God, would you give us the strength to move forward even when it's hard. And so Father, now as we, as we celebrate and worship and have a time of communion as a church, God, can we remember the fact that your son Jesus willingly gave himself up so that we would be near to you? And God, as we come forward, will we not be underwhelmed by the bread and by the juice? But God, we be overwhelmed by the fact that it represents your broken body and your spilled blood that gives us free access to you so that we don't have to come forward in shame and in guilt, but we can come forward in confidence knowing that our shame and guilt was paid for in the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. So God, remind us that again. And now as we sing, Lord, would you stir up in us an affection for you? we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church sermon podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply wanna see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting resonate.net.